Hi, I'm Susan Glasser, staff writer for The New Yorker. I think it's wonderful that Diane has pivoted to podcasts because it allows her to go deeper and longer with an individual guest and to really sort of unpack more than you're able to do in a traditional radio segment. So I think it's a great format for an interviewer as skilled as Diane, and it gets us to still have a connection with her. I know that Diane loves having you as a listener, and if you feel so moved as to donate, it's easy to do. You just go to dianereem.org slash donate. Hi, it's Diane. On my mind, Russian election interference. As this week's Democratic convention officially kicked off, the 2020 race for president, we continued to learn the full story of just what happened in 2016. On Tuesday, the Senate Intelligence Committee released its final report on Russian involvement in the presidential election four years ago. It outlined new details about links and interactions between Russian government operatives and members of the 2016 Trump campaign. It also raised concerns about efforts to influence the election this year. Benjamin Wittes is editor-in-chief of Lawfare and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He joined me Friday morning. Ben, you described the um, Intelligence Committee's final report on Russia's interference in the 2016 election here in the United States that was released on Tuesday. You described this report as devastating to Trump. Tell us why. Let me start by saying the report is much more substantial and a much more serious piece of work product than I expected it to be. I did not expect it to break significant new ground in a range of areas. It did. It also sought to answer a different question than the Mueller report sought to answer. Uh, And in some ways, a more interesting question. The Mueller report tried to address the question of whether crimes were committed, which is, of course, a very important question, and it's why we have special prosecutors. But here, uh, there is this other question, which is, to what extent was the Trump campaign and Trump himself posing significant counterintelligence risks uh, through its interactions with and potential penetration by Russian intelligence services. And that is the question that the Senate Intelligence Committee looked at on a bipartisan basis over a thousand pages. And uh, it turns out if you look at this question through that lens, which by the way, frees you from having to prove things beyond a reasonable doubt, it allows you to be a little bit more journalistic. You end up with a lot of different material, a lot of different analytical frames than Mueller used, and the results are pretty shocking. And so I say it's devastating, even knowing what Mueller had reported before, 
because the fundamental claim of the report in at least some areas is that the president's campaign was posing a grave counterintelligence risk. And that is an amazing claim for the Senate Intelligence Committee to make under Republican leadership, by the way, on a bipartisan basis. So that's the fundamental analysis behind the word devastating. So why do you suppose that the Republican-controlled Senate Intelligence Committee went forward with this and focused on this question, perhaps knowing that that was going to be the result, and then releasing it? Look, I think there is one person who probably deserves an enormous amount of credit for this, and it is not a person who it is popular to praise right now. So with all awareness of the controversies over Richard Burr's stock trades and uh, other reasons that he might be unpopular, both among Republicans and among Democrats, Let me say that I think the former chairman of the Intelligence Committee did a truly remarkable job with this. And the partnership that he struck with uh, Mark Warner, the vice chair, was really a model of how these things should work and a reminder that bipartisan investigative oversight is still possible. And, um, you know, Whatever trouble he may be in over his stock trades, uh, I do think this was a remarkable public service, and it was done at some political risk to himself. And uh, the skill that the leadership of that committee on both sides, including Warner and and Burr together, required for them to keep everybody from you know Tom Cotton to Kamala Harris on all the factual findings of this. You know, the Democrats and Republicans wrote some additional views separately. Um, they had different, some different analysis of the high-level points, but all 950 pages of this report on the factual matters, they're all on all of it. And that is an, an amazing accomplishment. And I think particularly in this political environment, exactly. and I think whatever else may be said about Richard Burr, he deserves a lot of credit for that. And, and Mark Warner, too. So why do you think it's gotten so little attention considering some of the findings which we'll get to? I think there are a few reasons, and uh, which are the which ones get priority. I'm really not entirely sure, but one is that a lot of the report covers ground that we already knew. It adds some details to the Mueller report. It sheds new light on aspects of it, but the fundamental story is largely one that we already knew. And so, I think the if you're the headline writers and you've got to sort of isolate what's new, it it gets a little bit muddy. Uh, The second reason is that it's really long and really detailed, and you got to get really deep in the weeds to get through it. Uh, A thousand pages, as you said earlier. Have you read the whole thing? I have not. We have a team that we put together at Lawfare that has collectively read the whole thing 
Um, and we are working on a very substantial summary of aspects of it. But, you know, it actually does take time to go through these things and to go through them with the kind of care that's going to get you uh, through uh, to what's really important here. So that's reason number two. And then reason number three is that, you know, having just praised Richard Burr, let me be quite critical of his successor, acting chairman of the committee, Marco Rubio, who, uh, you know, in releasing the report, grossly mischaracterized it and, you know, described the fundamental finding as that there was no collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia or between Trump and Russia, you know, and so the desire on the part of Senate Republicans to splash cold water on their own report to avoid antagonizing the president is definitely part of the reason that this is not getting you know, quite as much attention as it might otherwise. And then the final reason is just that we're all tired of Russia, the Russia investigation, right? We've got a a pandemic going on, an economic collapse. It did come out the week of the Democratic presidential nominating convention. And, uh, you know, the last thing that most people want to think about right now is Russian interference in the last election. Now, let's go back and talk about the evidence that's in this report of Donald Trump and his campaign working with the Russians in the 2016 campaign. Yeah, so there are a number of areas where the report I think really does break new ground, and I'll I'll identify three. Uh, the first is Paul Manafort, and so we had known from the Mueller report that Paul Manafort was, you know, a business partner, and from an indictment actually, that Manafort had this business partner Konstantin Kalimnik who had ties to Russian intelligence, and that he was giving Kalimnik some. Uh, confidential polling information from the campaign during the period of the campaign. Um, Mueller never quite identified what that information meant, other than to suggest that there was not a basis for uh, additional criminal charges on it. But the Senate Intelligence Report goes much further in a number of areas. The first thing is it identifies Kalimnik positively, not merely as having ties to Russian intelligence, but of being a Russian intelligence officer in the present tense. Um, And so the first important thing, assuming they are correct in that assessment, is that they are basically saying that the campaign chairman of the Trump campaign during the 2016 election had an ongoing business relationship with a Russian intelligence officer. What kind of business arrangement? Right. So Konstantin Kalimnik was Paul Manafort's sort of partner in this operation, in this consulting that he did for uh, a very prominent Russian oligarch, a a guy named Oleg Deripaska, who, by the way, the report says, ran influence operations for Putin. Um, 
he was also his partner in a number of uh, consulting relationships, business relationships with uh, Ukrainian pro-Russian oligarchs and the uh, pro-Russian Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych. So it's a pretty long and deep relationship. And it continues through the period of Manafort's service in the in the Trump campaign uh, into August 2016 when Manafort uh, resigns, um, and it continues past that point. Actually, so the the um, I think the first significance is that Manafort is in an ongoing way through the campaign while working for Donald Trump uh, engaged in a very deep business relationship on behalf of uh, Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs with a Russian intelligence officer. And that is something that that Bob Mueller did not uh, clearly report and the Senate Intelligence Committee does. And I, so the second thing is that it goes into significantly more detail about the sharing of uh, confidential information from the campaign with Kalimnik and sort of examines the question of what Kalimnik may have done with that information and concludes that we just don't really know. And then also, and perhaps most importantly, it concludes that we cannot determine what Konstantin Kalimnik's role was and therefore what Paul Manafort's role was in the hacking and dumping operation that the Russians conducted against the Democratic uh, campaign committees. And therefore, it leaves open this rather deep question of whether, in fact, a Russian intelligence officer in concert with, in consultation with the chairman of the Trump campaign was somehow involved in that hacking and dumping operation. It doesn't say that he was. And in fact, the analysis is all almost all redacted. So it's actually difficult to determine uh, what it may have, what their reasoning was. But it says, we, you know, the information is fragmentary, but it offers some reason to think that that may have happened. A second area that is, you know, also just different uh, is the degree to which the Trump campaign and Trump himself was involved in kind of coordinating with WikiLeaks about the release of information. Now, this was done through Roger Stone. You know, it is something that emerged in substantial part in Roger Stone's trial, so it's not entirely new. But it is vividly portrayed here that Trump had a uh, an interest in the release of this information, kind of knowing that it was Russian stolen information and that he had Roger Stone reach out or try to reach out to WikiLeaks to uh, find out when informa- new information was coming and, you know, and was perfectly happy to accept such releases despite wide reporting that this was information stolen by the Russians. A final area, and there are actually many more, but a final, I'm just using these as examples, 
So this was an area that Mueller did not treat at all because it was outside his jurisdiction. But the Senate Intelligence Committee goes through a fairly lengthy history of Trump's business deals and attempted business deals in Russia. And the significance of this, of course, is that the Russian intelligence services are known to use such things as leverage in uh, developing compromat on people, developing pressure points. And so these negotiations and deals go back as far as I think it's 1996. It's really quite a while back. And there's a pretty extensive discussion in, in the report of this history as a potential counterintelligence concern. So, I mean, there's actually a lot of new material and it covers a fairly wide range. Now, let's go back to Trump's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort. To what extent does the report outline his involvement? Well, as I said, it in, it describes uh, in very great detail the relationship with Konstantin Kalimnik, and as well as Manafort's own history of dealings in Ukraine and with Russian oligarchs, and concludes that this that having him in the campaign role under these circumstances posed a grave counterintelligence risk, which is, by the way, an extraordinary bit of language for the committee to use um, about a presidential campaign. Moreover, it, as I said, leaves open the question of whether Manafort may have had some role in the hacking and dumping operation. It doesn't say he did, uh, but it does not conclude that he didn't. And it, and again, these passages are largely redacted, so you kind of only know the top line. Who did the redacting, when, and why? Uh, I can't answer that question specifically, but I can tell you what the process is. Classification of information is an executive branch prerogative. Uh, in this case, we're dealing with genuinely sensitive intelligence information that involves uh, electronic intercepts or it can involve uh, sources. And so there's a genuine sensitivity about some of this information. The Senate Intelligence Committee, of course, does all this investigative work in secret. It then writes its report and the report goes to the executive branch for declassification review. And in the course of that declassification review, you know, one of the ways that it has of protecting material is to redact it. So, like, are these redactions on the up and up, uh, which I, I take to be the subtext of your question? Uh, it is certainly the case that politics and protecting, you know, preventing things from becoming public for political reasons has been known to influence such redactions. It is also the case that this is genuinely sensitive intelligence stuff. And so I was not surprised at all by the volume of redactions. But, you know, would I be surprised if I learned that they were not all entirely kosher? I wouldn't be entirely surprised by that. Were there any objections from members of the committee that such redactions took place? I have not heard any, and that actually is one reason to be confident that 
look, if you were if you were trying to redact this report so as to protect the president, you would have redacted more because honestly, there's plenty of stuff in there that's very damaging. So I, I, you know, with all classification decisions, the government errs on the side of overclassification, not underclassification. And those can be politically inflected. But I think if these redactions were, were primarily intended to protect Donald Trump, the declassification review was pretty incompetent because it really does not protect, um, you, you know, the president. Does this report include the conclusion that Donald Trump lied under oath? It does not, but it includes information that might reasonably lead a person to that conclusion. So, you know, Donald Trump in his written answers to Mueller claimed that he did not remember a series of conversations with Roger Stone that we previously described in which he was kind of uh, trying to get Stone to, uh, you know, getting information from Stone about WikiLeaks, coming WikiLeaks releases. Now, this report describes those interactions in ways that would make it, I think, very hard to believe that the president would not have remembered the conversations. Uh, And so a lot of people are concluding that the report says the president lied. Um, I think probably the, the more precise way to characterize it is the report offers evidence that suggests that the president lied, but it does not conclude that. Actually, it makes relatively few conclusions at all which is, I think, one of the ways that Burr and Warner held everybody together. I think they kind of decided, okay, if we just report what facts we we know, and then Republicans can write there, it means there was no collusion, you know, discussion at the end, and Democrats can write there, uh, it means, you know, there was a lot of collusion. And so you have these little conclusory sections that are distinct by party, at the end of the thing, but the document itself contains almost no high-altitude conclusions at all. So on what key points were both Democrats and Republicans in total agreement? Well, I, I would say on all the major factual questions. So the entire report has everybody on it. There's no dissenting views from the report. And then right at the end, there's these little two and three page statements where people say what they think it means. And they think it means wildly different things. But the report itself is everybody. And I, I think that's a kind of an actually an elegant, I don't know whose idea it was to do it that way, but it's a pretty elegant little solution. It allows everybody to be part of the committee's work. It allows a rigorous, serious piece of work product to become public and then says, we'll fight in the public arena about what it means. I think there's a lot to be said for that as a way of doing things. Uh, There is one big problem with it, though, which is that, you know, 
it allows different media ecosystems to respond completely differently to it. And so the, the mainstream media ecosystem can say, look at all this damning material that uh, was found. And the conservative media ecosystem can say, uh, giant Senate Intelligence Committee report finds no collusion. And they are, you know, one is much more right than the other, but both are arguably defensible, consistent with, you know, the findings of the report in the sense that the report doesn't say we found collusion. So how is it that Marco Rubio's voice came out saying there's no collusion? To what extent did Democrats counter that with an announcement of their own that there was much to suspect? So obviously Rubio is the acting chairman of the committee, and so he has something of a louder voice than others. Um, And he did, on the day of the release of the, the report, he issued a statement in addition to the views Uh, that he was part of in the document itself. He issued a statement that made this argument. He made a video. um, And so he kind of got out front uh, and I think may have done so pretty effectively, at least to the media ecosystem to which he was speaking. By contrast, um, the Democrats largely, not exclusive, but largely spoke through the report itself. And I think uh, you know, they they did uh, write this section of their own that was brief that described how they would interpret the conclusions. And I think to a larger extent relied on the press to describe what was in the report. You know, they mo- might also have been somewhat muted by the fact that the convention was going on right now. The thing that the Democrats want to be talking about is Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And, you know, they want to be talking about Donald Trump's performance in the uh, coronavirus crisis, right? And so this is not ideally timed for uh, their messaging either. And so I think, you know, to a certain extent, one side kind of decided to mischaracterize the report and the other side decided to let the media characterize the report. So it sounds very similar to the way Mitch McConnell got out in front and Attorney General Barr got out in front of the Mueller report saying there was absolutely no collusion, there were no problems. And it sounds as though the Democrats let this slide because of the convention and the COVID and everything else going on. Sounds like a missed opportunity to me. So, you know, I've I've given up criticizing people for not paying enough attention to Russia because whenever I do it, uh, somebody responds who knows more about public opinion data than I do. And they say, you know, the public actually really doesn't care about this. The people who care about this are people like you. So I don't want to give senators advice about what is going to work in the public arena 
what is, you know, their job is the politics of it. My job is the substance of it. And, you know, I, I think it's a pretty big deal. I think it's a big deal that Republican senators put their names on this report. And then I also think it's a big deal that they turn around and misrepresent their own report on the subject. So I think it's a big deal, but, you know, what role it can or should play in people's electoral strategies is something that's really beyond my competence. More of my conversation with Benjamin Witters when we come back. My name's Nick Hartigan. I listened to The Diane Reem Show for many decades, and now my son is listening with me to Diane Reem On My Mind. Makes me think of uh, when I listen to The Diane Reem Show with my mom. It takes a lot of work to produce a podcast like On My Mind. It gets made because of the members of WAMU. So if you love it, then you can support it. <laughs> you can make sure it keeps getting made and you keep hearing Diane on the air. Make a donation at WAMU.org. Here's the rest of my conversation with Benjamin Witters. He's editor-in-chief of Lawfare and a contributing writer at The Atlantic. What about the word collusion itself? Are there significant differences in people's understanding of that word? Yes, uh, that's a, it's a perceptive question. and. Uh, an important one. So the word collusion has no meaning in this context. You know, it is not a legal term, except in the context of a certain area of antitrust law. So it's a kind of colloquial thing, right? When you say, was there collusion? What you mean is, was the Trump campaign or Trump himself involved in a meaningful way in the Russian operation. And of course, if you're Bob Mueller, you have to translate that into something that you can uh, investigate as a criminal matter. And so Bob Mueller, for purposes of his investigation, uh, looked at the question of whether there was a criminal conspiracy that anybody in the Trump campaign participated in uh, with respect to Russia and found that he couldn't prove that. So if you want to think of it purely in the language of criminal law, he then found that he could not prove evidence of collusion, uh, which, of course, Bill Barr and Donald Trump translated into he found no collusion. Uh, If you're the Senate Intelligence Committee, you're not bound by the criminal law. They're not investigating whether laws are broken. They're investigating whether there was counterintelligence risk. And so what they found is a whole lot of areas where there were interactions, cooperative uh, interactions, knowing interactions between people associated with the Trump campaign and Russian intelligence officers, including, to go back to the original point, the chairman of the campaign having a business relationship with the Russian intelligence officer, right? And so 
whether I think it's kind of a mugs game to just try to decide whether to characterize this as collusion or not. You end up in a discussion like, you know, there was collusion. No, there wasn't. Yes, there was. No, there wasn't. And it's very silly. I think what makes sense is to simply describe what happened. And what happened was there were a deep set of relationships. There were many, many vectors of counterintelligence risk and probing by by the Russians into Trump world. Some of them, Trump knew he was getting help from the Russians. He welcomed that help. He tried to figure out how to exploit that help. And there does not appear to be evidence of, at least not conclusive evidence, of knowing, although there were knowing attempts, like the Trump Tower meeting, knowing activity on the part of the Trump campaign in cooperation with the Russian hacking and dumping operation or social media operations, although there was uh, unknowing participation by some people and there were numerous attempts at, at coordination. And that's the word I wanted to jump on, the word coordination. Does this report, in your mind, conclude that there was clear coordination between the Russians and the Trump campaign, even though there's no evidence of explicit agreement? There is a lot of evidence of at least tacit coordination. And the most direct evidence of that is through the Roger Stone and WikiLeaks materials. It's quite clear that Donald Trump personally knew that the emails were going to WikiLeaks. He had every reason to know that they were Russian stolen. He dispatched Roger Stone to find out what he could about when these were coming. And he planned media strategy in relation to what he knew about when stuff was coming and how much of it was coming. Now, we knew that from the time of Roger Stone's prosecution, so that is not entirely new by any means. But, you know, that is quite clear evidence that there was some degree of at least tacit coordination. How, in the midst of this whole 2016 campaign, and even more recently, what's the connection with Ukraine? And why did Trump sort of latch on to Joe Biden's son's relationship with Burisma in Ukraine? So there are a few relationships. It's all kind of sordid and tawdry. But the first is that um, of course, Manafort worked not for the Russians directly, except for Oleg Deripaska, but for Ukrainian pro-Russian oligarchs and for the pro-Russian Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych. These are Kremlin-friendly figures, but they're actually Ukrainians, not Russians. Um, the second issue is that when Manafort was associated with the campaign, uh, this obviously upset a lot of people in Ukraine 
who were aware that Manafort had been part of this exceedingly corrupt uh, government that had milked the country of, of a lot of money. And um, that information, that ledger of Yanukovych's payments and Manafort's involvement in that and receipt of these payments became public. Uh, Trump has always regarded the release of disparaging information by the Ukrainians and their offense and public statements of offense at Paul Manafort's uh, involvement in the campaign and of Trump's pro-Russian sentiments during the campaign, their pushback he regarded as very offensive. And that, in fact, led to his resentment of Ukraine that then flowers in the context of the um, uh, of the Ukraine scandal. So there was, you know, the two scandals are very deeply connected um, and they're in some ways not even separable from one another. So here we are in 2020 and Senator Mark Warner, who was part of that committee, the vice chair of that committee, said that this is not just about what happened in 2016. This is a warning of what could be or is happening right now. Is there anything in this report that gives you concern about what the Russians might be or are doing right now to interfere with our 2020 election? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, well, first, first is that the director of national intelligence office has made very clear that there are relevant ongoing Russian activities and uh, that they are efforts to uh, uh, affect the election in, in, in Trump's favor. How? How? So we don't know. They have not released details on it. And some of the Democrats, including Mark Warner, have been pushing for more information about that. Um, so, you know, all of this is against a background of warnings that there is ongoing activity, right? Um, the second, second point is that, you know, every one of these volumes of these reports as it has come, as they have come out, have made clear on a bipartisan basis that the Russians are back. You know, they're doing stuff now. Now, what is it? I don't know. But here's the other thing. If the Trump campaign in 2016 was this full of counterintelligence risk, like that it literally takes a thousand pages to describe it, do we think that the current Trump campaign, the current coterie around Donald Trump is free of similar counterintelligence risk? Um, I don't. And let me give you just one example of that. This is on the public record. There's nothing secret about it. But we know that seven, eight months into his term of office, the president sat in the Oval Office, boasted to the Russian foreign minister and ambassador of having relieved pressure on himself 
by firing the FBI director and proceeded to divulge highly sensitive covert action information about an Israeli anti-ISIS operation. So I start with the assumption that we don't really need the Senate Intelligence Committee to tell us that the presidency of Donald Trump or the campaign of Donald Trump poses significant counterintelligence risk. Uh, the president kind of makes that clear on a daily basis. The Helsinki summit press conference made that really clear. Um, I do think what we need the Senate Intelligence Committee for is to tell us about Russian activity. And this report is a window into the sort of Russian activity that we should expect that they are still doing because, you know, our spy versus spy with Russia, it, it's, it's a story that has no beginning and no end. Uh, these are counterintelligence and intelligence operations that just go on in the background all the time. So are they trying to figure out what they can do, who they can recruit, who they can compromise, who they can get to screw up and say something that they shouldn't say all the time? Are we trying to do that to them? Yes. Um, and those, that process is a never-ending process. Uh, should we assume they are trying right now to intervene in our elections? Yes. Should we assume they are trying to uh, prod and poke at the Trump campaign? Yep. Um, and should we assume that there is very significant social media manipulation going on? at the behest of the Russian state? Absolutely. That's what they do. So will Senate Republicans just hope that this whole thing is going to be swept under the rug? Or will, now that the convention is over and Joe Biden has accepted the nomination to the presidency, might Democrats come back and push harder on this report? Well, I think the likelihood that Republicans are going to be energetic about it, at least before the election, is near zero. Um, I think Democrats are doing what they can. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi has talked about it often. Mark Warner and Adam Schiff have talked about it often. This is not a situation in which the Democrats have been quiet about the ongoing threat. But from, I think from the Democrats' point of view, it's a kind of multi-front war, right? I mean, you've got, you've got Russian activity that they're concerned about. You've also got the president's activity vis-a-vis -vis the Postal Service, right? The war from the Democrats' point of view here is not limited to Russian activity. It's all activity that poses a threat to the integrity of the election, a much of which Donald Trump is himself, without any Russian help, the principal concern. And so, you know, I, I don't know how to assess what kind of job they're doing on that, honestly. I, I'm not an election specialist by any means. I, I do think pulling off an election in the COVID environment with all this going on is super hard. And a lot of people are working very hard to make sure it happens, both at the state and federal level. Unfortunately, a lot of other people are working just as hard to make sure it doesn't happen. And some of them are Russians. 
Ben, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. It's good to see you again. Thank you. That was Benjamin Witt, his editor-in-chief of Lawfare and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And that's all for today. Thanks to those of you who've reached out to let me know what you'd like me to cover during this very difficult time. Please continue to let us know what's on your mind. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email, drpodcast at wamu.org. Our theme music is composed by Jim Brunberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. The show is produced by Rebecca Kaufman, Allison Brody, and Sandra Baker. Our engineer is Mike Kidd. Thanks for listening all, and please be safe. Wear those masks for your own sake and for the sake of others. I'm Diane Reams.